three beards podcast my name is craig along with me is chris and austin and this episode has been brought to you by brats beard care premium beard oil made right here in central florida by a master craftsman i don't know if you call him a beardologist i'm not even sure what you really call it but makes makes a beard oil right here use promo code three beards with a capital b and you're going to save 20 percent off and at this time we would like to welcome our guest mr dennis stone all the way up from the storm-ravaged Northeast. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Greg. Thank you for having me on this evening. Yeah, I'm glad glad you're glad you're able to make it with us. I'm you know glad you guys didn't suffer any major damage. Oh, thank you so much for that. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. Yeah. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. You know, I said thank you again for all your patience with the technical difficulties there in the beginning, getting this going. So we're, we'll. We'll kick this right off um, for anybody that is unaware of what you're about. You have came across, you own some property that I've, I've come to note was nicknamed the Hill. Right. Yeah. We call it the Hill for short, abbreviated. It's easy to say that. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's referred to, and you can go to websites, um, StonehengeUSA.com. It's called America's Stonehenge. It's a site located uh, in Salem, New Hampshire. And Dennis, you are the owner of this property, correct, sir? That is correct. Yep. Yep. And if I'm if I'm not mistaken, it's right around 110 acres or so of this property. Yeah, it's just about 110 acres. Yeah. Yep. And we're located in uh, in North Salem, New Hampshire. Yeah, about 40 miles north of Boston. Now, did you know about this place before you bought it, or was this something like you bought the property and you're like, oh, my God, look what I just found? Wow. Uh, actually, it's a family affair. It goes back to my dad, Robert Stone, and he passed away about 10 years ago. And uh, back in 1955, he first heard about this on a radio show out of Boston. It was one of the largest uh, stations in New England. And on a Friday night, he used to listen to the show called Yankee Yarns back in 1955, as I mentioned and uh, on this particular evening, they were talking about these strange stone ruins uh, located in North Salem, which he had never heard of. And my dad had been in the Coast Guard for a few years. And then at this time, he had just um, started working for AT&T Bell Laboratories as an engineer. And um, he was always interested in the past, you know, the Vikings, Native Americans, uh, Columbus, all that kind of thing. So this uh, particular show really caught his interest. And it was only seven miles from where he lived. And he had never heard about this place uh, a few days later, he was at a barber shop waiting to have his hair cut, picked up a magazine. The magazine was called uh, New Hampshire Profile. And inside the magazine, as he opened it, uh, there was a feature about the same site 
of course, which he had never heard of. So it's quite a coincidence to see it twice in that week. And when he asked the barber if he could keep the uh, magazine and take it home and look at it, read it and show it to people, he said, well, how old is it? He goes, well, it's 1952 because it's been sitting in there for three years. So he gave it to my dad. That Saturday night, that week, uh, they were playing uh, cards at my aunt and uncle's house up in the same town, Derry, New Hampshire, uh, about seven miles from where I am presently. And he showed this magazine to probably about 10 people playing cards, having a beer and having a nice uh, Saturday evening. And nobody recognized the uh, article or, you know, the feature of the article uh, until it got to my aunt and uncle. And my aunt and uncle um, looked at it and they were kind of quite surprised because they had they knew about this place. They had been here in the 1930s when they were dating. So 20 years wow. before that. So another one of these, you know, coincidences. And so the next question out of my dad was, hey, can you find the place? And they didn't know if they could or not because they hadn't been here for a couple of decades. It was not open to the public. Uh, it was private property. So on Sunday, the next morning, the four of them, my aunt, my uncle, my mom and dad, they left me behind. I was a baby at the time and uh, kind of gives away my age, I guess. But they they uh, came and they drove all around this area and they finally located a road that looks somewhat familiar. They parked the car and they walked up about close to uh, over a quarter of a mile up this hill and uh, they found the site and it was surrounded by a large chain link fence that was put up in 1937 and the fence is still today to protect the main what we call the main site so my dad and the rest of them basically trespassed up the hill my dad <laughs> crawled under the fence because it was all locked up That's what and it had started. signs on it saying don't come in here so my dad went <laughs> in there anyway. you know uh, he didn't have any ill you know any bad thing you know he wanted to do he wanted to check it out though and once he got underneath the fence, the rest of them stayed outside waiting quite a while for him to reappear. And when he did, you know, he was basically blown away by the place. You know, he just couldn't believe this kind of stone construction could exist, uh, not only basically in his backyard, but anywhere in America, you know. It, we, you know, it just shouldn't be here, basically. Um, so a couple of years later, my dad was still at AT&T. He stayed there for about 30 years as an engineer. But in 1958, he finally worked out an agreement with the owner of the property to open it to the public as a museum. And it was opened up as Mystery Hill Caves uh, in the summer. Actually, the first day we were open is on the summer solstice of 1958. But the governor came, I think, July 9th, and they had the official dedication. Uh, so 62 years ago, just about now, we opened up the place. And it's, so it's been a family affair for all these years. And so on, I, w I was basically brought into it. It was no surprise to me, you know. <laughs> just <laughs> You know, because pretty much when does when does some, you know, massive discovery, you know, cool, excite, not start with somebody breaking into something. I mean, everything from Indiana Jones to everything. It always involves breaking into some place you're not in. supposed to be. Right. Yeah. So when did you guys change the name to? Yeah. So it was Mystery Hill Caves. Uh, it was actually the first year it was actually the stone. I think it was called the Stone Ruins of uh, New Hampshire. And that was actually the uh, business. And it was doing business as Mystery Hill Caves. But the word caves kind of denotes natural cabins, you know, natural uh -huh. kind of stonework. And so that confused a few people. Uh, we ended up in the American um, Cave Magazine, I guess it was a journal, which was okay, except these aren't natural. These are all man-made chambers. So in 1963, they decided to work, drop the word caves. So we had to change all our brochures and all the signage on the roads and everything. And it became just Mystery Hill until 1982. But wow. 1959, the second year we were open, the Saturday Evening Post decided to do a full feature on us. And uh, they ran a whole, um, you know, like we were, we, we still have the magazine today. And they referred to it as the Stonehenge of America. That's probably the first time that Stonehenge came up, that word associated with the site. And the reason they did that is because of the big stones, not because of the, 
The form of it's different than Stonehenge, but functionally it's similar. But we didn't know about the astronomical alignments until the mid-60s, about seven years later. So, um, but the name of it today is America Stonehenge, and it has been for almost 40 years. Yeah, because that was one of the things I wanted to, you know, talk to you because, you know, mutual friend Mark Eddy was the one that introduced, you know, me to you, which, you know, I really appreciate that, Mark. Thank you so much. Uh, he he brought that part up, too, and I, I was wanting to kind of get your take on that because we'll kind of from what I was seeing and the stuff, you know, this is something that obviously – you know, the culture that built this was not Native American because uh, we'll bring up some of the photos to show people. I mean, unless, you know, you, unless I'm wrong about that, I just because most Native tribes I know never built stone structures. Mm-mm. Most of it was I, think, I think you're right on the money. Uh, we've always heard the tradition of New England Indians, particularly, you know, just in Northeast Indians were not involved with uh, building stone walls and cairns and chambers, as you mentioned. Um and we know Native Americans were here probably over 10,000 years in New Hampshire. So the question still comes up, you know, did they have anything to do with the site? And we just don't know. But it was not the, the tradition or what we've been taught in schools about what the Native Americans did. Um, we're still investigating that, of course, you know. But it looks very Western European, the site does, you know, uh, megalithic. Yeah, the, um, one, like I said, one of the pictures um, – the producer's having a little issue on his side, so <laughs> might not be able to bring up a you know photo here. But what I'm looking at is it it you have a you have a stairway along with a path you know with the sign right next to it, but it's this moss covered entryway where it's in the ground. You see it, and you could clearly see this is something that you would expect to see Ireland, Scotland, England, you know, somewhere in you know somewhere other than up here in the Northeast, unless it was somebody that came from that area that built that way, because this is, you can see stacked stones that are made into an archway. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. There's a core building or arch kind of shape to some of the structures for sure. And it is very reminiscent of sites in Ireland, as you mentioned, and even like Scarabray in the Orkney Islands of Scotland. Some people compare it to the, uh, to that particular site. Um, and it does kind of look like that a little bit. Scarabray is more of a living site. And our site, we think, is more ceremonial, but the uh, stonework looks very, very similar to that. Have you guys discovered, um, through the research, I didn't see anything, but have you guys found carvings or anything in any of the stones to indicate, like, you know, like, get have an idea of who this might be? Any writing, any? Uh, yes, actually. Um, and some of it was found in the 1960s. We have... Um, one structure called the Chamber in Ruins, and it's a very interesting chamber. The roof slab has collapsed into it at some point in the past. The roof slab probably weighs somewhere between seven and 8,000 pounds. It's about 163 pounds per cubic foot. So just do the dimensions, you know, without having to pick it up and put it on a scale. The chamber also had a nice stone lintel. So the whole thing has collapsed in on itself, but the walls are still there. And in the 1960s, 67 and 69, they found three stones near the entrance. They were put on display in our museum as unknown markings for uh, about uh, seven or eight years until 1975. And that's when Dr. Barry Fell uh, from Harvard University first came here and saw the site and started studying not only the chambers, but the markings on the stone. And in his home in Arlington, uh, Massachusetts, he would um, take these stones back with him and look at them and study them. 
and then return them to us. He made plastic casts of them too, which we still have uh, some of the plastic casts. He identified three different types of script. And one of them was Phoenician or what he called Iberian Punic. So it's Phoenician from Spain and Portugal because of the style of it. And then he found Celt-Iberic. So it's Celtic Ogum, but it's without vowels. So it's Consine Ogum. It's an older proto-Ogum, I guess you would call it. And uh, that was the second type of markings. And the third type was Libyan. And because the Egyptians considered anything west of Egypt, Libya, basically. But the Libyans were in the area near Carthage, for instance, where the Phoenicians were later around 800 B.C. So he identified three different types of markings here. But these markings go from Maine, Manana Island up in Maine, where we were just two weeks ago. And we wanted to go out there and see it. But because of COVID-19, there was no transportation to the island to see the markings. But from Maine all the way up to the West Coast, all the way down to Brazil, they're finding these markings. Now, there are some that are have been proven as hoaxes, not here, but at other places. You know, there's always the, the hoaxer out there trying to fool people, you know, and mess things up. But um, but these there are literally thousands of markings that seem to be old world markings, you know, North, Central and South America. So it's not just at America Stonehenge. Now, I was looking as I was looking for those things. One of the things I came across during my research, too, was those vandals that came in. And that's been one of the things. It's like, why would you go into a site that, you know, and then carve something into one of these stones? That's sad. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, that's true. Yeah, we don't know what the motive was. Um, sometimes, you know, kids do graffiti and stuff like that. But this is a much, a much uh, uh, more, it was a deeper or a worse because they used a, um, a powered saw with a, a very large, probably a 14-inch diamond blade on it and caused, you know, a lot of, and it's still under investigation. Um, and so we can't say too much. It's been going on. I, oh, yeah. In fact, the uh, detective actually called me this week, and I, I've been playing telephone tag, and I realized that some of the courts in New England and New Hampshire are closed, so that's a part of the problem. And also transporting somebody in a car, you know, is part of a problem. But it happened last September, so it's been going on for a long time. I mean, it's been going on for almost 11 months and we're, you know, we're really not happy that they haven't, you know, taken some action against this person that did this. Um, and we can tell you more after, you know, after the person's arrested, okay. I guess. But it's nationwide. This stuff is going on in the national parks where some of the petroglyphs are being, you know, defaced. Some of the. Oh. He's froze up. Um what we'll get while we try to figure out what's going on there. Um, you know, North, they got ravaged by the hurricane. So we're, we'll get him, get him working out. We'll try to get him right back on. Uh, meanwhile, so that stone tablet that we're talking about, that one, at least on here is being, is thought to have been, you know, about 4,000 years 1, old. years old for 4,000. Yeah. I was yeah, looking at that, but that's crazy. If it's rated, rated to be like 4,000 years old, these people who built this, the sure strength that they had, they didn't have your bulldozer. They didn't have your, like, bobcat. So how did they elevate these stones to such a high level and elevate all this rock? You know, I mean, that is just so curious to me. Like, Yeah. No, and it's, I, don't, I don't know if you can bring up any of the pictures either, Chris. As you, as you go around and you look at all these pictures, this one is thought to have been – from what that's where I wanted to get with him 
it's it's really cool. It's this large slab that has uh, indent um, has a nice indentation around the whole way. So it's definitely been carved by more ancient means. But you could see the damage that those people that those people did when they vandalized it, which is a shame because this one, according to here, they think it might have been sacrificial. Uh, but whether or not that you know, I don't think human sacrifice when I say it, but whether or not this was one, because the questions, one of the questions I had for it too was about this being a possible site of reverence as people would travel here, kind of like Stonehenge was, where this wasn't something that was just built to just build it. This had a this had an intentional use that this was something that was designed for people to travel to because you're looking around, it doesn't have, it doesn't have the, from what I can see, like from the photos, it doesn't have your traditional layout, like a city or anything out. It has more of a layout of somebody that would be, think of it kind of like in a way, almost like a holy site. That's what where, I was thinking. It. Yeah. You might have a, you know, like, you know, you might see some monks or, you know, some priests, you know, sitting, you know, living in a couple places. There might, there's different buildings, but you can see there's just different, the way different chambers are laid out, it looks like they serve different purposes, but they weren't done in a way of like mass quantities of people living in this area. And you don't, you don't really see the evidence of where there would be a generalized like large gathering place like I've seen. You just see some more smaller, smaller areas, which would be more for how people envision like the druids vision stuff where you have a small group coming to perform an act and that's hopefully it doesn't even, yeah it doesn't even it doesn't even look like a tribe stayed there because most of you know if you look at tribes and the european oh you know they had lots of children and lots of ancestors so it doesn't look like this place housed that many people so was it just a a ground for sacred rituals they come and do their thing and then they go back to their wherever they're from i mean because it doesn't look like people stayed here for a long time and i mean i'm sure the people didn't find it uh, did they find any evidence of people actually living here basically yeah, they're just making this yeah i don't see any anything where it says that it looks like this was done because like we just said before he you know and he he kind of concurred too it was just most northeastern tribes they didn't build stone structures at all it was all it was wooden with you know all made out of wood structure they they didn't build permanent things like this out of stone and this construction definitely goes back to the old world of you know you can go back to viking you can go back to you know you name it it has this look to it and this feel and when you see some of these pictures it's actually if i ever make it to new hampshire i want to go check out the site it looks pretty cool it looks pretty cool and i said oh, when we get back in here we'll talk about that but he he mentioned i don't know if you guys heard heard it or not but i'll the corbelled roof and what that's what that is is where you stack you stack stones to make a doorway or an arch okay. and that is an old building technique back to the mid medieval times 
I'm looking because I'm looking at I'm looking at one of the structures. One of the structures is 502 by 270. That's a pretty big structure on the inside. I mean, yeah. so that could that could have been a living quarters, if you would say. He's back. He's back in. What? Um, well, I'll pose just a real quick question. What we brought up was, do you think this was a site designed for large gatherings, or was this be more where it was kind of like the priests of the tribes or the people would come here as a holy site and do their do their sacrifice, do their ritual? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty big piece of property, but I think possibly it was a gathering place uh, for special events, probably the solstices, equinoxes, uh, across 40 days, maybe a marriage. Some of the structures may have served actually as tombs. So as far as people living on the site, a priest or shaman, something like that could stay here for a short period of time. But I think the population probably lived in hide or wood structures, but away from the main site. The hill, I think, was sacred, probably more like a church where people stayed away from it and there are two processional paths on the hilltop. These are actually parallel walls that look like sacred ways at other sites around the world, you know, where people actually would go along these sacred ways on their way up to the main site where the particular celebration would take place. So it's not like the Flintstones where people lived in the chambers. They're really not that comfortable. You can climb into them. You can get into them and everything. They're big enough to walk into. Some of them are. But again, like megalithic sites in Europe, they're usually used as tombs, temples, and monuments, pretty much. Sometimes all three purposes. And then uh, that slab. Now, what I suggest, I was like, I doubt it was like human sacrifice, but it was more probably like some other sacrifices. I mean, this if you see it, there's definitely where they've used, you know, an old way of carving because you can see the indentation all the way around the slab. Like a rectangle. Yeah, it does have a big groove. I we thought until 2016 uh, that it was actually a rectangular groove on the table. It's a pretty deep groove too. It's um, almost about five and a half feet long. The groove is, and the width of it's uh, maybe four, just under four feet. The table's about nine thousand pounds, and overall dimensions roughly, roughly six feet wide. It's bell shaped and maybe about nine feet long. But it's not based on imperial measurements, we found out. We've been measuring that and other structures very carefully. And we found out they didn't use inches and all of that. But um, we think it's based on what we call a megalithic yard. And a megalithic yard is 2.72 feet. It equates to 83 centimeters or 32 32 inches, 0.64. It's found in European sites, and they're finding it in South America and and in Central America and some of the Southern mounds in the United States now, this measurement. So it's kind of interesting, but the table certainly could hold a person. It could hold an animal and it's been called a lot of different things, but it's a trapezoid shaped groove. It's not a rectangular groove. And a couple of the chambers we found out, if you look down at them and you could look through the roof, you'd see that the plan, the plan view that it's kind of a trapezoid and some of the megalithic sites in England, are trapezoidal shape, but it's not just, England, there are trapezoid, whether you go to Peru, you can see it in Mexico too, you know, but it's not 90 degree angles. It's kind of a trapezoid. And we were quite surprised to find that more recently. And I, I've just found a photo and where you're saying it's like, you know, like I said, I'm not sure about human, but I could definitely see an animal sacrifice because there's an actual cutout groove mm-hmm. where it'd be almost like a drain line. To drain yeah, whatever that. was around in that that rect, you know, that shape, that carve out area where it would drain off to that side. Absolutely. And it works when it rains, the water will actually go into the groove and then it goes to the what we call the front of the table. There's a little runnel and the water will run down in front of the table into a cutout in the bedrock. 
And the bedrock was specifically cut right below that runnel so that it could collect uh, a fluid perhaps. It's also possible you could set a vase in there like a gourd before ceramics were invented, you know, like pottery uh -huh. or maybe a stone vase, you know, to collect something. But the table has four legs and even its height above bedrock is a one megalithic yard. It's 33, 32 inches and almost a half, you know, 3264. The chambers are coming up with that measurement, too. So that's one thing we're looking at. Roscoe Whitney from MIT was one of the first people that worked on the site back in 1937. And he worked for a gentleman named William Goodwin. And he was the first person to really do the archaeology. His methodology wasn't up to par to today, but it was more like 1930s, maybe more Indiana Jones kind of, you know, work. <laughs> it's before carbon dating, before all these new technologies we're using. But um, he said he, he set up a plane table and he mapped the site. He has plan views, which we still have, and the cross sections and profile views. And he said, whoever built the site either didn't know or give a damn about linear measurements, because I've looked at imperial measurements of inches, feet and yards. And this site does not conform to that. You know, when you build a house or an airplane or anything, you use you measure it. Right. Even the Egyptians oh, yeah. use the cubic, you know. So, I mean, even my uh, my my new computer is measured on a certain size, you know, but the site doesn't conform to our units of measure, you know, and they are finding that on some of the other Northeast sites uh, in New York, particularly, but there are about 800 sites and not all of them have been uh, measured carefully, but we are using LIDAR now and we're going to be able to get very accurate measurements of the chambers, the walls, and the gentleman working with me from, uh, from Southfield, uh, Southfield, Connecticut, um, this equipment he's using is amazing. You can see down to one centimeter. It's very, very accurate. So I think we'll be uh, on our way to finding out the true measurements of this site. And again, I don't think any farmer or shoemaker built this site as some people have suggested in the past. You know? Oh no, I, Far, I was just farmer say. or shoemaker. Yeah. When you when, yeah. when you left, yeah. when you left, we were discussing like um, when this was when this was created, you didn't have access to bobcats, backhoes, all that different stuff. So how do you think these people laid this stone? I mean, because the stone is very heavy. Like, we, that's the mystery to this day. No one knows how they actually got the stone in place. I mean. Yeah. Great question, you know. And, you know, you look at some of the sites around the world where they're moving, like in Baalbek, one of the Phoenician cities, they moved, they, what they were going to do is move an obelisk, and they were cutting it out of the quarry, and they say it was a uh, 1,000 tons. So that's 2 million pounds, you know what I mean? And here, the biggest rock they moved was about 50 tons. That's still pretty heavy without, like you say, without hydraulic equipment, you know, bobcats and, you know, uh, excavators and cranes. I What we think is they use simple machinery, though. Um, we had a gentleman named Dr. David Stewart-Smith. He passed away four years ago. And he did a lot of research on how the stones were originally quarried off the bedrock. All the big slabs up here, and there's just hundreds of slabs from small ones to roofs, like the table, or the roof slabs, which are multi-ton. And they separated them from the bedrock. The bedrock is granite. It's foliated, which means it comes up in layers like an onion almost. But you have to know how to do that without ruining it, you know. And they were actually able to separate the bedrock, prop it up. And then what we found out and what Dave discovered back in the early 80s is they were actually using hammer stones. And they were dressing or shaping the stones by striking them, just like napping an arrowhead. And Dr. Gary Hume, the state archaeologist, he's still alive, but he's retired now, said it's unmistakable that these big slabs are shaped using Stone Age technology, not metal age, you know, recent kind of thing. But how did they move them from the quarry site to the site? And again, you know, moving something, and most of this is uphill because the site is kind of 
on top of the hill and you've got to move it up. You're not moving them down. And that's, you know, becomes a bigger problem because now you're working really against gravity, not just friction, you know. And we have, it's, yeah, so that's, you know, and then the, the walls here, there, there are miles of stone walls, which we do not believe are historic colonial or post-colonial walls because they contain large slabs of stone. They contain the astronomical alignments. They have windows. And some of them are shaped like snakes or serpents. And farmers wow. weren't building serpent-shaped walls. Sometimes they're just a wall that's 30 feet long that has a head, a body, and a tapered tail. That's not a – in New England, we have about 240,000 miles of historic walls. They started building them in the 1700s. And those are pretty typical farmer's walls, you know, field clearings, uh, boundaries, and stock fences. They're pretty typical. But when you look at our serpent-shaped walls, and some of them have windows, actually holes that are beautiful lintel windows in the wall itself. And these are found in Connecticut and Vermont. Uh, down in Pennsylvania, and they're finding these serpentine walls down in uh, Alabama. They call them rattlesnake walls. And in Colorado, in the eastern part of Colorado, they have features that look like our site, not just the serpent walls, but other features, you know, all the way out to Mount Shasta, California. And that's kind of new to us. We didn't, and I got 100 pictures of walls in California in that area. They look like serpents. And I didn't, you know, this is like, wow, this is a heck of a surprise to find it's from east coast to west coast, not just a northeast thing, you know. So we are discovering things. And a, great, again, how do they move these stones? You know, we can oh, yeah. only kind of come up with a theory, you know, and log. Yeah, I'm looking. Oh, no. Oh, no. He's like, ooh. Awesome. I thought, oh. <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> I, was, oh heart attack. I was like, oh, no. We lost oh, you again. guys again. <laughs> no, I was, I was just saying, you know, like the stone slab we've been talking about. If you see it, there's another photo I came across. It's one of those chambers. That slab on top of that one has to be almost three or four times that stone slab size. I mean, it's huge. Yeah, big. Yeah, one of the biggest roof slabs weighs 14 tons, maybe 28,000 pounds, you know. And again, how do they lift it up? How do they move it from its quarry place, you know, and then transport it? Um, but like Stonehenge, some of the stones at Stonehenge were 50 tons, and they moved them from Marlboro Downs. And I, I've been to Stonehenge a few times. That's about 20 miles away. They had to move some 50-ton stones uh, 20 miles without trucks, flatbeds, you know, and, you know, all of the stuff we have today that we can do that with. It, I would like to go back in a time machine and see how they actually did it because there's so many theories. Everybody has an opinion, you know, but how did like they really Easter, do it? Like Easter Island where they came up with the yeah. walking theory where they That's just true. kind of rocked it back and forth. And, you know, people nowadays have been able to move those things doing that rocking method. And they actually think this is a possibility. But obviously you're not moving a 14 ton object like that with a walking up, method up a hill. Up a hill, rocking method. Yeah, I that, mean that, that's, <laughs> not, that's not happening. That's not happening. Not going to happen. <laughs> no, so but I wanted to get back to it before we go too far away from it. So with use of LIDAR, what would you say has been the biggest surprise for you that's been discovered by using that? Yeah, the uh, walls that I mentioned are really, uh, without the, you can, um, with the LIDAR, you can see through the vegetation, like, you know, mm -hmm. like x-ray vision. So you can remove all the vegetation and um, the walls, I mean, we thought they looked like serpents just starting in 2016, uh, I found my first serpent wall up there and I thought it looked like a serpent. I had nothing else to relate it to. I had never heard of other serpent walls anywhere. You know, I heard of the serpent mountain in Ohio. And I'm familiar with that. But serpent walls I never heard of. And so in 2016 in the spring, I found my first one. And uh, the LIDAR really shows these. When you see the LIDAR pictures of these of the uh, of the walls without the vegetation, it's like it's pretty unmistakable that it's shaped like a serpent. It does the undulating either vertically, you know, the up and down motion or the side motion. Sometimes the serpents have a fat middle, like it ate its prey. And some of the serpents actually, again, have the windows in them. 
but they have, they're either linear, so they're straight, or rectilinear, like a 90 degree head or tail. And some of them are curved, beautiful sweeping curves. And one of the curved ones just comes out so striking. You can't mistake it for a farmer's wall. Um, and I think with, with a LIDAR, you can uh, actually measure things as I was getting to with the megalithic yard. So I think that's one of our big projects is if the shoemaker named Patty was up here building all of this, as a, some people suggest, you know, for a farm or for a shoe shop, which it does not look anything like, you know, why was he building these walls? And who else is building serpent walls across the nation that are so similar? David Stuart Smith, um, he passed away in 2016 when we first found the first windows and the first serpent walls. And he unfortunately passed away just as we were finding them. And he was quite shocked by these and surprised. And I think a little bit happy we were making these discoveries. But he, a long time ago, said, I think there's a lithic culture, a stone building culture across the Northeast that's been undetected, ignored, perhaps, you know, intentionally ignored, you know, and dismissed. You know, these structures are nothing more than the works of farmers, you know, because otherwise you got to rewrite the history books. We have a past that is not in the history books and doesn't really agree with what they've been teaching, you know. So it's sad, you know, because the rest of the world on every continent except the Antarctic, there are megalithic type sites, every, every continent. And recently, New Zealand, I found out, has these megalithic sites. Australia has them. South Africa and North Africa, you know, Korea had, in South Korea, they had close to 100,000 different structures that are megalithic. And megalithic just means big stone site, sure. usually yeah. from the Neolithic, uh, the New Stone Age into the Bronze Age, and then it stops. But Gobekli Tepe in Turkey actually pushes it back to almost 12,000 years ago, which is a total shock to the world, you know, that man was making structures back then that are simply amazing, you know? Yeah, you so. beat me to that. I was just going to say. Oh, I'm sorry. I still no, 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 you're it's good. Was, I was, I was <laughs> just hit the button. <laughs> beat me to it. it is, well, I was going to, we're going to have a guest on in a couple weeks or so that's going to talk about too, and I want to bring up this theory. What do you think are the odds that possibly it could have been even Roman influence? Oh, Roman. Um, there are Roman coins, you know, Beverly Mass, just not the Boston on the beach. They found Roman coins. They found them in Connecticut. They found them out in Kentucky on the Green River. Uh, they found them elsewhere, I think even in the Carolinas. And there's actually a Hebrew script like the Back Creek Stone down in uh, uh, Tennessee that's been identified as Roman. Um, and there's um, up in uh, Castine, Maine. It's a harbor up in Maine. You know, we were just up in Maine uh, looking for some inscriptions on Manana Island, some Phoenician script, which we couldn't, as I mentioned, get out to. But Castine Harbor had Roman amphimori. These are the big vessels that you would carry olive oil, uh, water, and wine in. And they found it in the bottom of the harbor. M multiple uh, terracotta jugs, these big, you know, that would, they're pretty good size. Found the same thing down in Rio, Rio de Janeiro, and they identify them as Roman. So, and then there's other pieces of evidence, like the Lost Loomer uh, out in um, New Mexico, Although I guess I'm getting into the Hebrew side of that, too, because they do think the Hebrew people came over here, too, during a, he, the um, one of the rebellions back around just after the time of Christ. There was a rebellion and some people escaped. So the Romans coming is still a puzzle to me. They find Roman coins all over the landscape. I don't think they're the results of uh, collectors just dropping their coins all over the place, you know, um, mm -hmm. as some people suggest. But it looks like a f different groups of people coming over at different times across the Pacific as well as from Europe, the Mediterranean, and from Africa, too, you know, into the Americas. So, um, you know, having the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean just as barriers, and nobody came here until 
uh, Columbus, or perhaps the Vikings, which they did come, we know that since 1960, oh, yeah. but, you know, Columbus discovered America kind of thing, you know, and um, the Irish called the monks coming over, the Welch coming over, St. Brendan, the navigator from Ireland is one of the legends in the fifth century, um, and um, different other peoples, like, coming into the Americas, leaving a little bit of evidence, not conclusive, though. That's the frustrating thing. You know, the archaeologists want 100 percent proof before they even accept it. Otherwise, it's a fake fraud misinterpretation or you're just playing crazy talking about it. You know, sort of thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that was kind of where there's always been rumor that ancient seafaring cultures have made it over to the, this location. And Absolutely. It, it wouldn't be a crazy thing, like you said. So here's the thing where we're thinking some of these objects are 4,000 years old. You already have a culture that knows how to work stone, knows how to do stuff. They come across an ancient site like this. Some of these things, I mean, is every everywhere on the site all dated about the same? Or are there some things that look like these could have been added to already existing ancient you know, structures? Yeah, that's a real good question. We do think that um, the site may have been used um, in different eras. And so it's like a layering of cultures, perhaps. The oldest cabin dating we have, it was done back in 1995, I believe. Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute did the particle acceleration test on it. And the University of Washington did the calibration. And uh, it dated to about 7,400 years old. And it was out near the North Stone, one of our astronomical alignments. But because it wasn't located adjacent or really about 20 feet from a wall, it didn't date the feature, you know. So, you know, somebody goes, uh, a lot of people go, was there anybody here 4,000 years ago? Well, Native Americans have been in New Hampshire, as I mentioned, at least 10,000 years, even in the northern part of New Hampshire where the mountains are. It's kind of rough. They have paleo sites up there. But, yes, people were here on this hilltop 7,400 years old, and it looks like there were maybe a camp. It was a campsite. And it may have been a few thousand years before the stone construction began. And then we have the 4,000-year-old era. And then we have some carbon datings a little bit later in time, too, going into uh, even into the uh, oh, around the time of Columbus, actually. Um, so we have 12 carbon datings on the site since 1967. And again, the earliest one on the main site where the structures are is 4,000 years old. The oldest on the hill is 7,400 years old. But the astronomical alignments seem to work around 4,000 years ago. The Earth's tilt is very slowly changing. The obliquity is about 23 and a half degrees today, and it's a 41,000-year cycle. And with that, it's kind of cool that the Earth does that because you can date these sites. Because even a guy named uh, Sir Norman Lockyer from England looked at Stonehenge and some of the other sites, and he said, you know what, they're off a little bit for the solstices. They seem to be a slight error. The sun seems to miss its mark a little bit. And that's because the Earth's tilt has changed. And he said it'd be kind of cool if you could, um, I'm sure he didn't say cool, but it's kind of neat that he could, you know, <laughs> a data site that way, you know. And uh, that was about 100 years ago. And then um, next gentleman was very famous is uh, Dr. Alexander Tom from Scotland. He passed away in 1985. We met him in 82. And some consider him the father of astronomy. you know, looking at how sites aligned with the heavens and how ancient people did it. And he came up with a megalithic yard, for instance. And he also realized that the ancient people were tracking the sun, the moon, and stars, and that you can actually date the sites using this Earth's tilt. And so when we sent our survey from 1973, we had a professional surveyor come in and start surveying, and he did it piecemeal, as we, as kind of as we could pay him, because it's very expensive to do that. And we have all this equipment recorded. You know, we used the Theodolite 2000, all this in the type of computers he used. But anyway, he recorded the uh, walls and the alignments. And 1978, we sent that data. 
to the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the results came back and said if these are used for astronomical purpose, they wouldn't work today. Where they would work about 1800 BC, 3800 years ago, plus or minus a couple hundred years, and that agreed with our oldest carbon dating, 4,000 years. And and oh, so wow. uh, today, and they said also you have 24 star alignments, and we we're only aware of one. And 20 years ago, a gentleman from Penn State, a doctor of astronomy, Dr. Winkler, Louis Winkler came up and he had been there 30 years teaching about ancient sites and astronomy. And he came to us and it was a great resource from 1997 to 2001, I believe. And he suddenly died because he retires, has about a couple of years of retirement and then he's gone. You know, it's one of those stories. But he, he was uh, investigating the star alignments and pretty much identified them. And interesting, the question you said about from one period or maybe this was used for, you know, by different people over time, he identified uh, three different time periods over about 1500 years. And he has like, you know, a, the first time period was like a thousand years. And then the next was like 600 years. And then the last was like a thousand years, sort of like Stonehenge because Stonehenge was uh, built in stage one, two, three, ABC, they believe. So kind of similar to that. So um, it kind of mi- kind of messes up the, uh, the, the history here a little bit. If you had just one culture, it might be a little easier to work with when you have people using the site over and over again. And even the Patty family, you know, going into the late 1700s into the 1800s, it contaminates the site. You know, it, it makes it kind of interesting, but it makes it a little hotter when the archaeologists try to solve the problem of, you know, who built this, you know. And yeah, that's it. yeah, kind of what led me to that is you can see some of these ones. They have, even though they still have the same, like you said, we, it's not really sacred geometry, but, you know, it's that megalithic yard. Thing. They they uniformly around here, but then you'll see some of these other ones. Instead of it just being whatever stone we could find to make this height, now you have these uniform stackings. Like that first one, what I you can see here's a nice uniform doorway, which clearly shows somebody that knows more about. I need this exact stone for right here to make this exact uniformity. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and I mean, that, have- that's kind of where I was wondering about that. Has there been any any like metal detector devices put down anywhere on this land and maybe see if you can find any artifacts, coins, or anything like that? Has there been any other artifacts discovered from this area without disturbing the, stuff too much? The, yeah, metal detector is good for locating, you know, metal things. And my dad, uh, my two uncles, actually back in the 50s, they started making their own metal detectors before some of the companies like White made them, you know. And they were using them way back when. And they're kind of Good, because you can actually identify something. Then you mock it with like maybe a little flag and then you go back and you can do an excavation, you know. Um, yes. And I have uh, three metal detectors from my my, my 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 dad and from my uncle who have all passed away. I, I got the collection of them here and I have used them. I've gone up mostly to look for uh, tools that I lose in the woods, you know, and they're actually good for that. But they are helpful um, because, um, you know, there is metal stuff up there, but it's mostly historic. You know, I think in the last few hundred years. Um, but we have used ground penetration radar, and that's like X-ray vision. And so metal detecting is good. And some of the uh, capability, you know, today of discrimination of different types of metals and stuff is really, really good on metal detectors. But the ground penetration radar, we started seeing that here in the 1990s. The company was right down the street. And the company's sister company was a company called Klein. And they're the ones that had the sonar that found the Titanic, you know, with Robert Ballard. And uh, this Right. This son- that sonar and this radar was actually used to find the um, um, the uh, space shuttle Challenger with Krista McCullough from New Hampshire when it went down in, 80, in 1986. You know, they used that equipment for that. Uh, some of the sonar, I should say. 
But the value jet crash in Florida that happened uh, about 20 years ago, uh, they used that equipment to find that in the swamp, you know. So this equipment's good. So we, we haven't been using the sonar here, obviously, but that's great for underwater archaeology. But their sister company made the radar, the ground penetration radar. And since then, they've moved away, but they used to come up here and demonstrate it here back around 1994, 95. And they even gave us some of the uh, equipment to put on display, which we still have. But we have a woman that's been up here this year, and she uses some of their equipment and some made up in Toronto. And in 25 years, I can say that the um, the software and the hardware have improved immensely. When you look at uh, a feature underground, it looks like a feature. It doesn't look like a bunch of squiggly lines anymore. Really amazing stuff, you know? Oh yeah, did we lose no. him? No, no, Chris. Yeah, you know, he just dropped off there. Really oh, okay. Um, yeah, um, it's it's one of those um, we've got. Hey, Chris, um, here, continue on real quick. I've got to go off camera for just one second. I apologize. Definitely. Um, yeah, where, where I was going with that, you 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 kind of didn't really. Um, so, has there been anything discovered from ancient times, or has the whole land been surveyed around? And have y'all discovered anything that you? like lately that you haven't seen or anything new that's washed up with the weather or different things. Do you discover something new every time you walk it? That's, that's, that was basically my question as far as the, Oh you know, yeah. Start of a... Yeah. I, I, we do find things quite often. Um, but I haven't used the, um, the metal detectors too much lately. I, ha I was using them last year a little bit up there and my dad used to use it, you know, in the sixties and seventies a lot more, you know, but yeah, we're still finding things. I think I found another stone window today. So that was just by my eyes. You know, I'm looking at this wall and it looks like it's got a window, which is these beautiful lintel windows that have been called spirit windows. And in England, they call them soul holes. And they think that the spirit would pass through these beautiful windows. They make no sense in the stone walls. So that was my latest discovery today is I think I found another one, but it had shutters, little stone shutters that were loose in it, just kind of blocking it. And uh, a couple of our windows have that. We have probably 14 of them. Uh, the serpent walls were found since 2016. We have 13 of those. We have 14 windows. And uh, we found more big slabs of stone. And the interesting thing is we got about 33 of these. And some of them are only a couple feet across. But some of these are immense. They're, they probably were going to be used for roof slabs, you know, like that 14-ton roof slab. These are laying all over the hilltop and down the hill. And uh, about a year or two ago, we came up with about 34 is the number we have so far. And what kind of really shook me up is that I think the ancient people had a much bigger plan for the site. They were quarrying, the, they had quarry people out there, men and women or whatever, quarrying these slabs, preparing them and shaping them to be brought up on the hilltop. Because for many decades, we thought maybe the site was built, finished, abandoned, maybe somebody else used it and then abandoned. And then eventually it just fell to disrepair and that was it. But we think they had a bigger plan and so if that's true and they went to all that work and these things are located all over the 110 acres, these, these big slabs that have been not only separated, but propped up and you can see the serrated edge where somebody was smashing it, you know, um, I think something happened. And the, and the question is what happened? Why did, why was there a work in progress? And all of a sudden it's like, okay, guys, we're done. We're out of here. You know, um, I mean, was it disease, we don't know, you know, definitely. I could go on, like, I could go on and on with the questions. I mean, cause it's so, I mean, basically, you work there every day. So many unknown questions to this, like where, what happened to a whole generation of people and nobody archived anything like, OK, yeah, well, some people can't. We came in, we killed this generation of people. This is what they had, blah, blah, blah. But there's no documentation of that. It's just some, yeah. you know, 
monuments that you all discovered. And is it my next question? Is it a national protected site, or basically you're just the owner of it and it's proprietary to your family? Well, that, that's a good, very good question too. It's it's always been in private hands. We even have back in 1667 where the people bought it from two Native Americans. We have their names, and they actually bought the land, this this general area, basically, for like three pounds and 16 shillings. So it's a state historic site. 50 years ago this year, in 1970, the state designated it as a state historic site. It, it affords it a little bit of protection, but the state has really not bothered with us. When we opened up in 1958, the governor came. When we put up the new visitor center in 1994, we only had some of the town people here. So the state really hasn't really taken a real interest in this, except for some individuals have made nice comments saying it's kind of a treasure, it's kind of a precious site, thank you for keeping it. And if it wasn't for my dad and for the people before him, you know, like Goodwin and Malcolm Pearson that owned the property before him, and even going back a little bit earlier, perhaps this area would have homes all over it today, you know, and it would be gone. And that is true of some of the, um, you know, the United States had almost a million mounds uh, up to the 1800s. These mounds are shaped like pyramids. Some are shaped like animals and some are um, geometrically shaped. Um, and many of them are gone today because there's roads, highways. St. Louis is sitting on gigantic mounds. It was called Mound City originally. Madison, Wisconsin was sitting on ancient pyramidal mounds, as well as Milwaukee, Lexington, Kentucky, and down in St. Petersburg. There are mounds all over the place. And you get on there, you don't see them today. You have to go to Crystal River in Florida to see some of the beautiful mounds. And um, that's true across the United States, and hopefully we can save some of these, you know. Um, but there are about 800 sites in the Northeast. When my dad began in 1955, there are a few of them now that are underneath the highways, like Route 495 is an outer belt of Boston, and there are chambers that are, they were bulldozed down, you know. And my dad recorded them in the early 60s, and the highway system really got going. It started in the 50s, but by the 60s, it was in, you know, the highways are really going, and some of these uh were destroyed because archaeologists had no interest in them. Historians and scholars said, oh, they're just a bunch of colonial or post-colonial constru- you know, constructions, you know, not really worthy of anything. And that a little bit of that goes today. And that's kind of sad, you know. I mean, oh, yeah. with them saying that, some of these sites are still subject to being destroyed. And maybe in the future, we'll have enough data and evidence with new technologies and stuff that they'll realize these are really ancient sites and that some of their forebears should have not said that because now that these structures have been destroyed because they didn't think they were important, you know, you know, it'll be like, oops, you know, 20, you know, Monday night quarterbacking kind of thing. Yeah. Think about times you've been hiking through the woods and you come across, you're going to see like all these stacked stones. You're going to be, you know, a lot of people aren't going to think anything of it. They're going to take it apart, use the stones for something else. That could have been a marker that was a point that was associated with a site like yours, but somebody on their property, here's just a stack of stones. And some people actually, and that's a good point too. Yeah. And some people actually know that that's tired, unfortunately, of people trespassing because you have to have, you know, owners, you know, if you have private property, obviously you should respect the, the owner. And some people weren't respecting it, you know, and asking permission, may I go on your property and look at this chamber? Some people just doing it, you know, and some some property owners reacted by taking the structure and bulldozing them down, you know, which, again, it's kind of, oh. yeah, you know, it's kind of sad, too. You know, nobody wants to see that. And I think it's probably a worldwide thing, too, you know, trying to protect some of our ancient treasures, no matter what continent, no matter where you're from. This happens in England, too, and it happens in other places. You know, some of it's destroyed. So we're trying to do our best to protect this. There's no federal law, really. And, you know, if we wanted to put a, uh, 
if we wanted to tear this down and put homes up here, I guess we could do it. Even though it's a state historic site, we could do that. Uh, my family has no intentions of ever doing that, and we hope it stays like this forever and ever and ever. My son, I only have one son. He's an engineer like my dad. Okay. And he's, okay. he found one of the uh, cool things is if you go on the summer solstice sunrise, that line that goes from an astronomical center to a stone circle, which was an observation point where you stood. The circle's probably about 15 feet across. It's a big oval with stones, with a, with a stone in the middle. You stand there, and you look at the stone, and you see the sunrise on the summer solstice. If you continue on that line, 3,200 miles, that line on Google Earth, not Google Maps, will take you right through the center of Stonehenge to one of the large trilathons. And when we saw it, it's like, wow, it brought shivers. It was 2012, and that made the History Channel's show America on Earth. The line does continue into Beirut, where there's Phoenician site, and it does continue into Israel, where there's uh, the Giant's Wheel, which is pretty phenomenal. I uh, did a little more work on that, and I said, oh, it's quite an interesting coincidence and it did raise you know the hair on my back of my head and my dad had just passed away just before that even if it's a coincidence it's just like wow we've been looking at that stone in the sunrise for years and yet that line goes right through Stonehenge in England that's pretty remarkable so my son found that and uh, after that we found that the true south alignment goes through Machu Picchu and Peru you can try it yourself the sun the winter solstice sunset to the southwest goes to the moon pyramid down in Tiwatiwakan, which my dad and I visited back in the uh, early 80s and the equinox sunset goes through Pueblo Benito at Chaco Canyon in New Mexico, which is a fantastic site. We went there in September. The equinox sunrise goes to the Canary Islands. And I didn't know this, but the Canary Islands has megalithic sites and they have pyramids. And this line goes right through the pyramids in the Canary Islands. And I offer everybody to try this. Just do it very wow. carefully with Google Map. And, and actually, the uh, August 1st sunrise goes to the Giza Plateau Three Pyramids. You know, it's about 139 pyramids in Egypt. LIDAR has found 19 more recently in the Worldview 3 satellite. But the three, the three pyramids, the Great Pyramid on the Giza Plateau, the alignment goes right by that. So it's like a lot of coincidences, you know, and it, and it may be, but it's, I don't know, it kind of stretches the brain a little bit. Yeah, you're going mean, to yeah, ask coincidences when you have that many, you know, yeah. exact alignments. I mean, now, yeah. now that shows that concepts. Yeah, that were in tune to ley lines and stuff. Yeah, that there's a design. Yeah, I'm not Seems big on. Big. Yeah, I'm, I'm not big on. I'm not big on coincidences. I mean, pe the yeah. people, the average people back in that time were smarter than we thought they were. They actually aligned stuff. I mean, who knows what that meaning, the true meaning to them meant by it aligning in different directions? But I'm sure they had a, a meticulous purpose for it lining up in the direction. But earlier you stated that the way the earth has twisted or the way the earth has moved, I wonder, did it line up different in, in the past? Oh, yeah, they, that went. Yeah, the whole earth, actually, the whole earth twist so that those alignments would still work. You know, you know, although continental drift is very slow, but in 4000 years, it's almost it's not going to really affect it too much. But the earth tilt. Yeah, that 41000 year cycle is so important to help date the site. And then you've got the processional cycle. That's 26,000 years. And what it does is it changes the uh, sign of the zodiac. So going from Pisces into Aquarius, the seasons change too. They don't stay in sync with the uh, months. So that's going to change too. You know, the nice warm months we have will slowly change. And the pole star changes. So today Polaris is the pole star. It has been since around the time of Columbus, pretty close to being true. You can navigate using that, you know, 4,000 years ago. Uh, the pole star was Draco, or excuse me, Alpha Draconis. And Alpha Draconis is in Draco, and Draco is a serpent. So when the Egyptians looked up at the North Star, they saw 
spinning around Draco, the serpent. And again, I think these serpent walls may have been inspired by something, and we're thinking it could be the constellation Draco, one of the one of the eighty-eight constellations. That's what I was gonna say. I was just like, I'm like, I think you might have hit on what that serpentine wall is. It's like, you know, it's somebody talking about the constellations and he beat me to it. What is like the I look forward one day to actually come in and shake your hand and look at the um the what is the best time of year to come? I mean, I loved I love stuff like this. I went actually visit visit the ancient ruins when I was in Belize. This stuff oh, really wow. This stuff That's really cool. intrigued. I gotta get there. I gotta get there. Yeah, they're they're really Mexico, nice. I heard. I gotta get down there. I've been to Mexico a few times, but never. I, Belize and Honduras too. I think. Um, I think October is really good because the only problem with October it is our leaf peeping month, and we get a lot of people. But with you know COVID nineteen, I don't know what's going to do to our leaf. It's our biggest month is October now, not the summer like it was years ago. Uh, mosquitoes are gone. The nights are cool. The foliage is beautiful. Um, I'm not sure again, what's going to happen with travel, you know, in a couple months, but, um, I think October's probably in the winter. If you come up, you can snowshoe and you can see everything because the leaves are gone and it's kind of cool. Although if there's a lot of snow, it starts to bury a lot of things. You don't get to see all the features, you know, so yeah, but it's under the snow, you know, but, uh, I think October, maybe in late September, you know, and we'll see what happens this year. But when we opened up in the fifties, the summer was our biggest right into the seventies and all of a sudden October you know, for some reason, I think people want to come up and see the foliage, you know, so it's been a good month for us usually. Yeah, I usually go to Tennessee and see that, but, you know, I like, to, I don't, I don't like to come when there's a lot of people, so that's why I asked, what's the best, I mean, I would like to see some snow, but that's why I asked, what would be the best time of the year to come, and, you know, so. Yeah, maybe November. Maybe. November, it gets chilly, though, you know, and it's before the holidays. November's pretty good. Um but we stayed open um, all spring, but we closed the visitor center and had people just kind of go outside, buy a ticket and stay. Now we have the, the buildings open, the theater's closed still, but you can go online and you can see a 12 minute video introduction, you know, and what's kind of cool, if you know, you want to come up sometime, but you might not be able to do it right away uh, because of, you know, business and stuff, uh, work. Um, we have a free app download on your mobile app under America Stonehenge, and it takes you for a complete tour of everything. It has text, pictures, and it talks to you. And you can do it in your, your easy boy, you know, lazy boy, I should say, at home. You can lay back and you can watch it. If you come here with it, you can actually walk around with it. And it's kind of cool, too. So, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of cool. Everybody, yeah. everybody check that out. And, you know, normally we don't give out people's names and addresses. But in this case, you definitely want to go to you definitely want to go to Haverhill Road <laughs> in Salem, New Hampshire and check that's this place cool. out. Yeah. You know, it it's uh, America Stonehenge, you know. StonehengeUSA.com. Uh, Dennis Stone, I uh, want to thank you, sir, for taking the time out of your evening to come in. You know, it was short notice for you, but as far as I'm concerned, and I'm sure the listeners were concerned, it didn't sound like this was a short notice thing. This sounded like this was a planned out thing that we we <laughs> talked about for many, many days, many things. And everybody, you get a chance, Northeast. Go up there, see him for sure. If you guys have a plan of going up to the Northeast, like Chris said, put this on your calendar. Make sure to go support these guys because this is one of the things. I mean, you want to see stuff like this get preserved. The only way you can do that is by going and actually putting a coin in his pocket and helping him out because this stuff isn't cheap. (laughs) You know, this there's not a whole lot of people doing this stuff on charity. So by helping him out, yeah, helps him helps him preserve. You know, and like you said, the more revenue you guys bring in. 
the more discoveries you guys are going to be able to find. You may, you know, you'll be able to get at something that you've been having to hold off because I don't have the money for it. Well, that's very kind of both of you, Chris and Greg. So I totally enjoyed talking to you. And um, as we get new discoveries, I'll pass them on to you, you know, and oh, yeah. you. both oh, of you. But you guys, great questions tonight. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, thank, I can't you. thank you enough, like I said, for taking the time out of your evening to come speak, come speak with us. And we will definitely do it again because when we talk about the stone structures along the Ohio River Valley and stuff, I may, you know, we might, you know, might even bring you in at the same time and talking with them or, you know, make it like a joint show or just at least bounce some questions off you, you know, in time for that. So that's perfect because there is a serpent wall in Indiana. It goes across one of the rivers there and it looks just like one of ours, the same shape and size. So maybe we can talk about that too. <laughs> See, they're, they're more connected than, than we believe. So, but hey. Dennis, well, thank you. Thank you. Greg. Thanks, so and have, a, have a great night. Um, send, you know, send thanks to the family for sacrificing their time with you for us. So we really appreciate it. Well, thank both of you and have a nice weekend. I can't wait to get back on your show and talk to both of you. All right. Thanks sounds good. We'll see, we'll see you later. Yeah. Right. Take care. Now. Thank right. you. Bye-bye now. All right. See, fantastic conversation. Very, very well yeah. That was that was great. Um, but once again, everybody, go to StonehengeUSA.com, find that mobile app. You can then you can go around and you can see these things firsthand. It's just simple, America's Stonehenge in Google, and you'll see all these images that we're talking about, and they're, they're really really impre impressive. And just by saying Google, I set off my phone. It's tr it's trying to search up what I was telling it. So see, it's that easy. Just say, Hey Google, America's Stonehenge. If you had an iPhone, it wouldn't have done that, you know. I, yeah. Well, no, see, it brings up America Stonehenge. That's what you need to do. Well, this episode was brought to you by Brots Beard Care. Amazing beard oil. Highly recommend you use it. Um, it's all essential oils, all natural. Made right here in Central Florida by a crafts, craftsman, Kelly Brot. Go to BrotsBeardCare.com. And you use promo code three beards with a capital B, and you're going to get 20% off, free shipping on all the orders. And why and why you're there, make sure you ch make sure you check out our signature blend. This was made together with us and Kelly. And by buying this, not only do you support him, you also support us. And go to Nanny Cakes, Nancy Burke. She. She's also been one of the sponsors for us for a long time, and I highly recommend you go ch check her out. Nanny Cakes 407, or give her a phone call at 407-923-2898. I think I got that right. 2898, that's it. Yeah, yeah I think I got that right finally. Uh, I'm going to toot my own little horn. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so check her out. Go patreon.com forward slash three beards podcast. Become a Patreon member today. Help support us as well and we you do that every time we come up with a sticker we're going to send you one as a patreon member so that that can end up being once a month that can end up being a couple of months so the more support we get the more we'll be able to create new stickers so please do that go to youtube and subscribe please so that way you can keep in touch with us when we have new episodes but chris awesome thanks for setting this up and we will see you later on everybody have a good night <laughs>